You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 26th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, Germany gives the go-ahead to supply Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. There are many people who look this from a historic place and they didn't realise that Russia of Putin is not the Russia that we made peace with after the Second World War. We'll examine why the country is still so afraid to militarise and whether Europe is ready for an active German army. Also coming up, there's a lockdown in Pyongyang as the number of Covid cases rise. We'll try to find out more. Plus, more classified US documents are found, this time at the house of the former Republican Vice President Mike Pence. Are we looking at sloppy filing systems or something more sinister? Then... It is a chance for us to showcase the very best films of the past year and for global movie fans to come together as we shine a spotlight on artists working on both sides of the camera. I'll be joined in the studio by the film critic Karen Krasanovich. She'll be offering us her assessment of the Oscar nominations. Plus, we'll look at the papers too. That's all coming up on The Globalist. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The aircraft manufacturer Boeing is to appear in court after relatives of those who died in two plane crashes try to reopen a compensation settlement. Meta says it's to reinstate the Instagram and Facebook accounts of Donald Trump. And people in Bangkok have been advised to work from home and wear face masks because of unhealthy levels of air pollution. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Ukraine received arguably its biggest boost yet yesterday in its resistance to Russia's invasion. First Germany and then the United States announced that they will send tanks. The German decision follows weeks of international pressure from both Ukraine and Germany's allies who've wanted approval to send some of their stocks of the Leopard 2 tanks. Well, in October at the Warsaw Security Conference, Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with Ambassador Christoph Heusser. He's a former permanent representative of Germany to the United Nations, who formerly served as foreign policy advisor to the former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Andrew began by asking where Germany's military reluctance comes from. You have to go back to German history. And people don't believe this outside because the Second World War, it's ages, it's 80 years. But at the same time, It's deeply enshrined in the German DNA that what Germany did in the Second World War to the Soviet Union, 20 million dead. And then we did our West integration very successfully, but at the same time we did our Ostpolitik. So we again made friends with Poland, with Russia, despite our history, and they agreed to our reunification. And Putin wouldn't have done that. You know, Gorbachev at the time was a weak Russia, yes, but they were ready for more opening up. So there are many people still in active politics who lived through this period, said we owe them something. Russia was ready to allow Germany to reunification. So why don't we pursue this policy? So there are many people who look this from a historic place and they didn't realize, but today they do, but they didn't realize until 
February 24th that the Russia of Putin is totally different from the Russia we have learned to like to work with during the late 80s and early 90s when we had the fall of the Iron Curtain, when we had the German reunification. And this change of mind of Putin becoming a totalitarian, aggressive leader, I think there there were still a lot of illusions about what Russia is. But the majority now sees it very clear that Russia of Putin is not the Russia that we made peace with after the Second World War. This is clearly a turning point in history. And this is about Germany assuming a more assertive role. This is something that we at the Munich Security Conference also believe it's very important that we get out of this excuse that because of our history, we have to be reluctant. What I think the lesson has to be today very clear, Germany, fourth largest economy worldwide, we have to assume more role. That was the Ambassador Christopher Heusken there talking to Andrew Muller a little bit earlier on. Well, joining us now to examine this further, I'm delighted to say Suda David Wilp, the Director of the German Marshall Funds Office in Berlin. Good morning, Suda. Good morning, Emma. This does feel like a huge development in the war, doesn't it? And in Europe and in Germany. Yes, it is a huge development. And as Ambassador Heusken mentioned um, in his remarks, Germany is definitely going through a site and vendor or turning point Um, At the outbreak of the war, Chancellor Schultz gave a strong speech um, in the Bundestag about how Germany needed to transform energy independence, military spending, and also a total um, change in attitude about policies toward Russia um, in comparison to the last couple of decades. And the step um, taken yesterday is just one more move in this transition. This was arguably a recognition from Germany that Ukraine must not be allowed to lose the war to Russia. It would be devastating, not just for Ukraine, but for Europe and its security. I think Germany is definitely realised that Ukraine is um, fighting for democracy, fighting for European values. And it is, of course, in Germany's interest that Ukraine wins. But um, for Chancellor Scholz, Germany's interest is also important. And Germany's interest also includes at this point in time, or at least in his mind, not taking the lead um, in this military um, step when it comes to sending combat modern tanks to Ukraine. I think it was very important for him for um, a couple of reasons, whether what reasons, whether it's a lack of majority in the electorate, pressure within his own party, but he didn't want to see Germany being forward-facing. He really wanted the United States to take the lead on this. And the fact that we it, they did say, you know, we will send if the United States agrees to, it unlocks an enormous process now. Nonetheless, the perception is one arguably of weakness. It has taken a very long time for Germany to get to this point, losing its footing arguably within the European security world. But also the way that Olaf Scholz and his new defence minister were talking at the weekend that they didn't know how many Leopard 2 tanks they had. I mean, that smacked either of incompetence or, or, or not being or lack of transparency. Yes, absolutely. Or one can also say um, a delay tactic because it was very important for the Chancellery to get the United States to commit to sending the Abrams tanks. Um, and so in one sense, he won in the short term. He was able to perform this coup and have the United States, which didn't really want or didn't see the need to send those particular tanks because the United States is um, supporting Ukraine 
in a tremendous way, um, 10 times more than Germany, uh, for example, um, when it comes to military equipment and aid. But um, for Olaf Scholz, that was very important, and he did um, get that commitment. And so for him, it was a short-term win, but in a sense, for Germany, it was a tremendous loss of trust, and then the long term did hurt um, Germany's interest, and people do think that maybe becoming sort of the taking on the leadership role is still very elusive for Germany. So now the real implications begin, and we begin to see them, not just internally, because Olaf Scholz did meet a lot of resistance from from inside his, his government in terms of the, the path he was taking, but... Germany's relationship with war is being reassessed now and also Germany's place within the the coalition in Europe. Does this move now dispel any notion that Germany is not committed? No, I, I still think that um, Germany has, a, a, you know, still there's still some um, turning in the turning point or the Seitenwende, if you will. I mean, so this was this decision gave now um, Chancellor Scholz the political space. He has to do more. His government needs to now make sure that choices are made so that the defense industry is ramped up because. The Bundeswehr is quite bare, in fact. There's not a lot of equipment there. It's in a sorry state. In fact, when he went and spoke in front of Parliament yesterday, he criticized Angela Merkel, although the SPD was very much part of this government and was sort of the driving force in terms of not spending on the military. So I think that Germany has now, um, you know, is being a part of this uh, contribution to Ukraine but at the end of the day, it still really needs to do more to bolster its defense capabilities so it can be a credible security partner within Europe. You mentioned the, the word Zeitenwende, which is it, which is stems from Olaf Scholz's speech. I think it was just after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It means turning point. It, is what happened yesterday, the, the, the decision to send the tanks, is that what is, that what is going to define the Zeitenwende for, for Germany? No, I think the site in Venda is going to be defined, as you said, um, when the speech was made um, back in February, a few days after the outbreak of the war, until um, moving forward, because there were a lot of things, a laundry list that Chancellor Schultz actually put into the speech. And I think those are going to be the um, measurements, or that will be how um, people will define whether the site Venda has been met. Um, it's done an incredible job already in terms of weaning itself off of natural gas, Germany, and now it's doing more to strengthen its military. Uh, that was just one step, but more needs to be done. Will Germany still meet its 2% commitment for NATO, for example? These are all things that we'll have to see happening. And um, it was also, you know, I think Chancellor Schultz also made this decision because he, there were also cracks within the coalition. You, you will um, recall that um, the FDP and the Greens were pushing Chancellor Schultz to make a decision about the Leo tanks and were urging um, him to do so, many people within his own government. It makes you wonder whether this decision was ever in any doubt, that it was a matter of time before Germany stepped up. I think um, you, you, that's absolutely correct, because... If you look at Germany, all in all, it is also one of um, the largest contributors to Ukraine militarily and financially. Um, alongside Britain, um, it's right behind um, the United States. And um, Germany is doing a lot for Ukraine and it will probably also do a lot for Ukraine in the reconstruction period after the war. 
Um, but because it always hesitates and it seems to need to be pushed along to make these decisions, that messaging or that narrative of being a, a big supporter of Ukraine gets lost in the headlines. One thing that we heard a little bit earlier from the um, the Ambassador Christopher Heusken is the fact that the, the Russia that we are dealing with today or Germany is dealing with today is very different from the, the, the Russia that um, encouraged and supported the reunification of, of, of East and West Germany. Um, is Germany or is Germany now content or, or settled with the fact that it can no longer be the bridge to Russia? There is realization among policymakers that, um, you know, Putin's Russia is different than the Russia that Germany has contended with in the past. In fact, um, the general secretary of, or the chairman of the SPD came out and said that um, that we have to look at security architecture um, in Europe really against Russia and not necessarily together with Russia. That's a huge change in doctrine um, for the SPD. And um, there's no question that Berlin realizes that this is a different Russia. But what, what Berlin still needs to sort of overcome is that it needs to maybe try to um, put aside its fear of Russian escalation and think a little bit back about how Germany acted during the Cold War together with its allies. Yes, detente was important, as um, Ambassador Hoiskin said in your interview earlier, but um, it was also a West Germany that was backed up by military might that made, um, you know, made um, the, the allies win the Cold War. Suda David Wilp, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Berlin. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. here in London, 2.14am in Washington, D.C. Now, the number of classified documents now being found at the private homes of America's leading politicians is growing. After three sets of papers were found at the home of President Joe Biden, classified documents have now been collected by the FBI from the Indiana home of the former Republican Vice President, Mike Pence. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Julie Norman, who's co-director of the UCL Centre on U.S. Politics. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. So just tell us what has been found at Mr. Pence's home. What's what's the nature of these documents? Yeah, so what we've heard so far is there's just a small number of documents, probably about a dozen, that were found in Pence's home. Um, it's important to note, you know, Pence did uh, ask his team to look at some of the documents he had out of, quote, an abundance of caution after all these revelations from Trump and Biden and whatnot, um, immediately contacted the archives, um, very much agreeable with uh, the FBI to come and, and take the classified documents and whatnot. So, again, very cooperative, um, the actual content of the documents is still not public, of course, um, but it seems like, at least so far, a relatively small number that have now been given over to the proper um, the proper authorities. So, how will just explain to us how all these these disclosures are actually happening? I mean, one is getting the the impression that there are senior figures now rushing through to, to through to their garages to rummage through piles of papers. It almost seems that way. So when a president and vice president leave office, uh, everything, all their documents is supposed to go to the National Archives where, where it's stored. 
all of that usually happens in just essentially a one-day turnover on the day that the new president and vice president are inaugurated. So you usually have aides, all different kinds of staff who are packing up boxes, moving them places. And so that is at least what many in Washington say explains how this happens, that you just have boxes and boxes of often you know, millions of documents uh, that are, are moved around and stored. Usually, um, you know, we assume that there's not a you know, nefarious intent behind some of this. Some of this is just, uh, you know, neglect or, again, um, just uh, kind of oversight with these last minute packing up of things. But it is questionable why some of these, um, you know, very highly um, marked classified documents end up in the shuffle with these other ones, put into boxes and garages, forgotten about for years until we you know, start having these probes where it's like, oh, maybe maybe I need to go and check that closet, check that box and see what's actually in there because I never really went through it that properly. So are we looking at just sloppiness here or, or are there suggestions that there are more sinister issues at play? I mean, we, we're already, we, you have as a starting point the Mar-a-Lago discovery by Donald Trump, which had some quite contain some quite spectacular information. We're not are we not looking at this on the same scale, are we? Well, I would say it's too early to say, and that is why, at least for Biden, the Justice Department has um, assigned a special counsel, so a sort of um, independent individual to look into that, it's supposed to be a little bit less politicized. And that's largely because of the backdrop of Trump and the investigation there. With Trump, I would just underscore that I, it wasn't simply having the documents, but it was also his refusal to turn them over when there were um, requests, then subpoenas from the archives, from justice, and Trump refused. So his situation is not just having documents, but um, actual potential charges of obstruction of justice, which is very different from the process of what we're seeing with Biden and Pence so far, where it does seem to be um, more of a, a carelessness, uh, which um, is is also not good, but is a little bit different than uh, than really refuting justice's request to get some documents back. Politically, though, I would say for Biden especially, it's uh, it's just as, as damaging in some ways. It uh, kind of has them lose that ace that they had with Trump in the documents. And it's somewhat of an unforced error at a time when Biden should have been riding high and building some momentum. And what are your thoughts on the way that the Biden administration has actually handled the discovery? I mean, they have they have admitted that there, there have been documents that have been found. They have admitted that they've been willingly handed over um, and that, you know, there is no sense of trying to hide what has actually happened. But in the way that it's been communicated, I mean, we don't know what kind of documents have been found in many of these situations. And also it's, you know, this is this is some time since Joe Biden left office. There are some basic questions that are still left unanswered and one wonders what damage that is doing to the Biden narrative. Yeah, very much so. Again, there's there's what happened and then also how the administration has dealt with it. And I think uh, many Democrats as well as Republicans have been pretty critical of the White House and not being more transparent about this. You know, it's important to know that the first documents were found um, back in November prior to the midterm elections. Uh, they were immediately uh, handed over to the archives and justice, but the White House decided not to go public with them until CBS kind of broke the story um, closer to Christmas. Uh, the Biden team says that there were legal rationale for doing that. They didn't want to look like they were publicly going on the defense uh, for an ongoing investigation. But the more this kind of um, has a drip drip kind of quality with more things coming out, it's hard to um, it's hard to kind of balance that with the transparency that I think most Americans expect around a situation like this, especially given what just happened with Trump. And so Biden's claims that he has, quote unquote, no regrets over the way they've handled this. I think he's getting a bit of pushback even from some within his own party for that. 
and says, look, like, you need to take a mea culpa on this one and admit that there was some wrongdoing. How much is this going to be used as uh, ammunition when it comes to the presidential election, given the fact that everybody now seems to have had some classified documents somewhere in their house? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, essentially, it kind of cancels it out in a way. Again, even if legally they're different, politically, they they are, are somewhat equivalent. And so I wouldn't say that it would, um, you know, knock Biden from like Trump can't really use it against Biden. But the previous ability of Biden to use this particular issue quite strongly against Trump is now pretty much nullified. And so that is um, a real loss, I think, for Biden going into this uh, potential campaign. Um, And especially in terms of this idea of how did you handle it? Were you transparent? Unfortunately, this feeds into the narrative that Trump always uses about uh, the government and about the administration uh, kind of being this deep state hiding information, that kind of thing. So unfortunately, it doesn't play well politically at all. Um, and again, I would say it's uh, it's a, it, the Biden team, I think, will feel it more. They thought they had a kind of an ace in the hole with Trump's situation. And now they really can't use that at all. And this special counsel of the Justice Department that you mentioned a moment ago, which, which will be appointed to try and answer the questions, which so far none of us have been given the answer to. When does this happen and what do we think will be the effect of their report? Yeah, so there's actually two special counsels, one for for Trump and then one for Biden now. Um, My understanding is that since the midterms, the the special counsel, Jack Smith, for Trump has been pretty... um, pretty hard into this and is and is really trying to sort this out before we get even closer to election season and campaigning. Um, and I assume we'll try and they'll try and have a swift response on Biden as well. But the thing is, I mean, justice investigations can take a long time, especially when you're talking about, you know, again, perhaps millions of documents that are stored in some of these boxes, um, the levels of classification that will make it very hard to make some of these things public. So my guess is this is going to be a bit of an ongoing process with, um, kind of information coming in drips and drabs as we go through uh, the next couple of months. Julie Norman, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's Globalist, the Academy Award nominations are out and Baz Luhrmann's Elvis is among the nominees for Best Picture. I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Are you ready to fly? I'm ready. Ready to fly. We'll go over the awards and other news from the world of film with the cinema critic Karen Krasanovich, so stay with us. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. In a little while, we will be heading uh, to Ukraine to get the latest from there. But first, a five-day lockdown has been ordered in the North Korean capital of Pyongyang. Authorities are citing a respiratory illness as the reason, with people being told to stay at home and take their temperatures daily. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined uh, from South Korea, from Seoul, uh, by James Fratwell, an analyst at NK News. Good morning, or good afternoon, I should say, James. 
Yes, uh, good afternoon and good morning. So thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so when they say respiratory illness, do we just take it as COVID? Um, I, well, you know, it, it does depend how you look at it. Um, one of the issues is for North Korea that they um, probably don't have the capability to uh, properly determine whether someone has COVID or not, at least not on a large scale. So if you remember back to uh, spring last year when North Korea acknowledged its first uh, case of COVID-19 and there was this huge outbreak, um, if you dive a little bit deeper into the statistics, you'll find that there, there weren't actually that many confirmed uh, COVID cases, or at least uh, cases that they were willing to come out and say they're definitely COVID cases, they'd use, uh, they describe them as fever cases. Um, so again, uh, the North Korean authorities are probably noticing something spreading in the capital. Uh, of course, we're, we're um, you know, very deep in, in winter at the moment. Um, it's really perfect conditions for another outbreak of COVID in North Korea, whether it is uh, COVID or not, you know, that it, it, I suppose it probably is, but um, the, the North Korean authorities are going to be careful regardless. There is an, a sort of a, a, genuine, a general acceptance of a certain amount of guesswork being done along around here, um, which is par for the course when it comes to Pyongyang. So one wonders how and why this information has come out. Um, well, I mean, we have... Uh, I can't go too deeply into that, unfortunately. But, um, you know, we, we as an organization, NK News, uh, we do have our, our ways of um, knowing what is going on uh, on the grounds um, in North Korea. But, you know, it is, it is um, you know, I can't go too much into that, but it is getting more difficult to know what is going on in the ground um, because the, the country is just so locked down at the moment. So, I mean, North Korea was never famous for being a, a, a particularly open or easy place to go to. Um, but ever since the COVID outbreak, um, there, there have been no one uh, has, has gone into the country. Uh, no one known um, has gone into the country apart from a, a really sm small handful of people. Um, the you know uh, international uh, no no tourists uh, going into the country uh, diplomats and and humanitarian workers no one can come in you can only leave and so the number of um, uh, outsiders especially is has really been dwindling so it is very difficult to uh, to get uh, information from North Korea these days and it's and it's you know having a lockdown in Pyongyang is possibly not something that uh, North Korea would want to tell the rest of the world about too much but. We do hear regular reports about the the country's health system and the fact that it isn't uh, it isn't resilient enough to to cope with a major outbreak of COVID. Right, uh, you know, even before the pandemic, actually, I remember reading a report is from two thousand and nineteen, and it describes North Korea as I think it was the third uh, worst prepared country in the world to deal with an outbreak of an infectious disease and then, uh, you know, look where we are. Um, another big problem North Korea has is that um, most of its population is likely totally unvaccinated. 
the international community has offered a lot of vaccines to North Korea. They've they've turned them down for whatever reason. Um, NK News does uh, have information that suggests um, that some North Koreans have uh, had COVID-19 vaccines and uh, other news outlets as well, um, citing their own sources, uh, have written about um, how some North Koreans have received vaccines. But it seems that uh, the North Koreans that are vaccinated, they seem limited to uh, perhaps the, the capital Pyongyang, uh, areas that would um, receive um, uh, trade, um, so port areas perhaps, and also areas on the border with China. But this again might be limited to trade officials. So if there is a big outbreak of COVID-19, North Korea's population is really vulnerable. And you, you, mo- you mentioned the the neighbour, China, a country which is only just coming out of an incredibly strict um, zero COVID policy. What can China do to help North Korea if indeed North Korea will take it? Um, so the, the the vaccines that um, North Korea might have received, they might uh, have been from China. So China might be able to help North Korea there. Um, and of course, Basically, uh, before the pandemic and even now, anything that went into North Korea, it it probably, uh, you know, not much of it went from the southern border. It didn't go from South Korea to North Korea. In most cases, everything is going uh, to a certain extent, little extent through Russia, but also uh, mainly through China. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, if if the, um, you know, if Kim Jong-un doesn't want to accept the help for whatever reason. I mean, he could uh, open his borders to international age groups, right? And these age these age groups are offering the help. Um, but Kim Jong-un also has other considerations. He's probably thinking, well, yes, uh, the population might be suffering and uh, the economy as a whole um, might be going downhill as a result of my COVID lockdowns. Um, But also, I don't want to open the borders because uh, opening the borders to outside help, that means more uh, outsiders inside the country who can, um, you know, get a sense of the reality on the ground in North Korea, have a look at how bad it is. And that means photos leaking out to the international press that kind of damages um, my efforts to maintain the, the North Korea in a, in a kind of uh, shroud of secrecy. So I'm not going to do that. James Fretwell on the line from Seoul. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. In a moment, we, hear, we head to Lviv in Ukraine. But first, a quick summary of some of the other day's headlines. The aircraft manufacturer Boeing will appear in court later after relatives of those who died in two plane crashes tried to reopen a compensation settlement. 346 people were killed after flaws in the flight control systems on the 737 MAX caused the plane to nosedive. Boeing failed to disclose information about the system but avoided a trial by agreeing to pay $2.5 billion in fines and compensation. Meta says it's to reinstate the Instagram and Facebook accounts of Donald Trump. He was indefinitely suspended from the platforms for praising people engaged in violence after the Capitol Hill riots. Meta says that due to Mr Trump's past violations, he'll face heightened penalties for repeat offences. 
And people in Bangkok have been advised to work from home and wear face masks due to unhealthy levels of air pollution. The Thai capital's already bad air has been worsened by forest fires, burning on farms and construction activities. And this is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Keen for a quick tutorial on where you should take your business over the coming months? The really brilliant products are brilliant, not because of a marketing campaign or it's because they've managed to get some incredible ambassador. They really are good because they add value. Interested to learn how one of the world's biggest pharma companies responded to the pandemic? We need what's called warm preparedness. So we need public health systems that have the supplies ready, at least for the initial phase of a pandemic. Curious about the future of air travel? Everybody's looking forward to connect with the world, connect with friends around the world and just spend some leisure time and some relaxing time abroad. Or wondering whether shops will still matter. There's thousands of different journeys through the store that anyone who walks in could take. From CEOs to editors-in-chief, CMOs to chief strategy officers, our series is a fast-paced, intimate discussion with chiefs, big and small, from around the world. That's The Chiefs right here on Monocle 24 or wherever you find finer podcasts. Now, while the headlines focus on the immediate effort by the West to offer support to Ukraine, it is to the long term that we turn now and the collaborations needed to rebuild and recreate a country devastated by Russia's invasion. Richard Burge is the Chief Executive of the London Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and he joins me on the line from Lviv. A very good morning to you, Richard. Good morning. Um, it's good to have you with us because we've heard in the last, <clears throat> excuse me, we've heard in the last hour that there are widespread air raid sirens being uh, let off in Ukraine with the uh, immediate threat of a missile attack. Um, we're hearing it from uh, in Kiev, uh, in Vinnytsia as well. What's happening where you are? And well, the sirens have gone off here in uh, Lviv, um, and those people are sort of you know, sort of being fairly phlegmatic about it. Um, my meeting with the governor in half an hour is still on very firmly. Um, the, um, but we know now that, that, that missiles have been uh, appearing in also in Kiev as well. So it's not a false alarm that missiles are actually happening. Um, but not here in the bit so far. Um, and that sort of sets a very um, important context for your visit insofar as you are there to try to rebuild, recreate and, and, and adopt a long, long-term long strategy for, for, mm-hmm. you know, for rebuilding Ukraine. It's quite difficult when you're working in those circumstances. Well, it can be, but, you know, I have to say, the, you know, the sirens, have, I've been here a week, sirens have gone off three times. It's, it, it, of course, it's serious, but it's an inconvenience rather than a disruptor. Uh, for people in most of the country where life carries on not as normal um, because it's a country in war, a lot of its economic activity is focused on it, people are displaced, but actually it's remarkable how much people are doing. I was with a major IT company here in Lviv yesterday who basically have operations in 13 countries and they are carrying on. They made a 30%, had a 30% organic growth last year. The IT sector I heard in Kiev uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, had a 3% growth across the country last year in the middle of a war. So this is a country where the economy has not collapsed. It's still going very strongly. And while there might be these things now, the important thing is actually to think about the future. And you can't wait for everything to be nice and dandy before you start planning for the future. You've got to start planning now. 
to what can the likes of the London Chamber of Commerce do and industry do to, to in that planning process? Well, I think there are two things. One is uh, we've got to make sure that uh, Ukrainian businesses are given as many opportunities as they can to trade uh, goods and to service uh, British industry. They are they are top class people here in terms of their products and in terms of their services, and they deserve to have a, a place in our in our economy. And the other thing is, London is a global city. You know, London's life as the capital of the UK is fairly minor in the life of London. London's importance is as a global city, and it is as much a Ukrainian city as it is a British city. So people like me need to be out here to tr- try and create those things, to find the opportunities for London's skill-based, not just in financial and professional services, but in all disrupted tech businesses, in biomed and in creatives, to play a part in Ukraine's recovery, which has to start now. We can't wait for the war to end. We have to start that recovery now. Because if you don't go over there, I mean, who is going to start to steal Ukraine's lunch? There's often the suggestion that, that China is very, very ready standing by in the wings. Well, there's plenty of people who are, you know, active and doing business. And, and I think I'm afraid the British government needs to step up to the mark. At the moment, the Foreign Office advice to coming here is so unnuanced, it means that it's very difficult to get insurance. That needs to be sorted out. And I have meetings already arranged in London to try and do something about that next week. The other problem is that if you are going to, if you're a Ukrainian business person, you want to go to the European Union, you do not need a visa. You just have to make sure you don't spend more than 90 days out of 180 in the Schengen area. If you are a Ukrainian business person wanting to come to Britain, you have to travel to Warsaw, the capital of another country, put your application in. And we, I met a deputy minister in Kiev the other day who waited two months for a response and then was then turned down, turned down without a reason. So actually, the British government has got to realise it's, it's its own worst enemy. It can make very good announcements about tanks, but what is going to sustain Ukraine is a viable economic relationship with us in the UK. And at the moment, the Home Office is the biggest single obstruction to the UK's participation in Ukraine recovery. We don't have anyone from the British Home Office to, to respond to what you've just said, but well, there does... There they, does... They, they, sorry, I know you've got to say that, but that's the typical response. Um, of the Home Office is their their whole attitude to life is that everyone outside is evil. They are not. The European Union doesn't have that response. They have visa-free travel for business visitors into the European Union. Why are we not doing the same? And I'm sorry, them not appearing on a programme is not good enough. How does what you have just said there suggest that a more coordinated response, dare I say it, from the European Union might be more successful? when it comes to helping Ukraine? Yes, it will be more successful because they are more coordinated. And also, the fact is the European Union doesn't treat everyone as as though they are an illegal immigrant. And I'm afraid we do. This is a perennial problem. This is not just Ukraine. And whenever I travel overseas, the big problem is businessmen and businesswomen trying to get visas to come to the UK. In any other country, this is handled by the Foreign Office or by their Ministry of International Trade. It is not handled by bureaucrats in the Home Office. Richard Bird. So I think the first thing, we've got to move away from this. And that is a, this is a big issue. We do have to actually get Ukraine engaged in Britain. But unless they can travel and do business with us, we're not going to be here to help. Richard Bird, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Lviv. You're with The Globalist on Monocle 24.
8.39am in Milan, which is where we head now to look at today's European newspapers. I'm delighted to say Ed Stocker, our Europe editor, is standing by. A very good morning to you, Ed. How is Milan this morning? Uh, very good morning to you, Emma. It's, it's, it's cold here this morning. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> tell us what you found on the papers in your, in your chilly or, I hope, well-heated home. <laughs> and let's start in Italy, shall we? Let's start with La Repubblica. Now, of course, the world's attention uh, has been captured or was captured uh, 10 days ago with the capture of uh, mafia boss Matteo uh, Massina Donato. And this story that I want to turn to first looks at his life since his capture, basically, uh, this piece in La Publica is looking at his first 10 days in jail. Uh, I guess attempting to look behind all the headlines that have been written about his notorious past uh, in the wake uh, of his capture outside uh, that medical clinic in the capital of Sicily, Palermo, saying that basically he's cutting... A, a very different figure. It's almost as though they, they sort of uh, feel sorry for him. Uh, I'm sure that isn't the case, but it talks about how he is alone and ill. Don't forget, of course, that he was um, receiving treatment at the clinic, at, at the clinic I mentioned, for cancer. And apparently the only people who've been visiting him in jail in the 10 days since he was arrested have been doctors uh, he hasn't had any family members at all, uh, been visiting him apparently. He's spoken to his granddaughter who's a, a lawyer on the phone and he's apparently received a telegram from other family members that according to this article he keeps on reading and rereading. But apparently he's cutting a quite a forlorn figure, a sort of acceptance of his fate that he will most likely uh, spend the rest of his days behind bars, choosing not to, to sort of exercise in the hour that's allotted to him. But also apparently, interestingly, uh, it seems like he is willing uh, to collaborate in, in, in some form with authorities. Apparently, according to Republica, he's, he's open uh, to dialogue, but sort of also saying that he's not guilty uh, of the crimes of which he is accused. One of the, the interesting things that you we've got here is um, the portrait of uh, a clearly ill and vulnerable man um, choosing to, to strike a very forlorn figure here. Um, it's, a, it's a very strange to twist in a tale which has basically involved a man who has ruled by fear and done unmentionable things or ordered unmentionable things to, to, to dozens if not hundreds of other people. Um, is this, this is a really difficult uh, decision that anybody telling this story has to make, isn't it? How sympathetic do you make a mafia boss? Exactly. I, I mean, I don't know what... It's hard to know exactly what the intention behind this is and if any of those things I mentioned in terms of almost feeling sorry for him are, are intentional or not. But it, it, there's a sort of very particular way in which these articles can sometimes be written in Italy, the sort of attempt to look behind the scenes and, and tell this story. Um, but yes, a, a very different uh, sort of figure, uh, given the fact that he seems to be quite ill that, and uh, that could be a reason for it. But obviously, as you mentioned, Emma, accused of horrific crimes. He was, of course, sentenced uh, in absence uh, for his part uh, in killing two uh, feigned magistrates in Sicily, Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino. Uh, they were killed 
1992 and 1993, respectively, by the mafia. He's also accused of, you know, killing a teenage child uh, of a mafia informant. He's also implicated in the killing of a, a, a pregnant woman. Horrific crimes of which he's accused. And as one might expect, and apparently he did this actually back in 1993, he wrote a sort of letter saying he was innocent. He, he He's trying to distance himself, saying he would never commit those crimes. Obviously, we'll, we'll hear more details about all of this uh, when he faces justice. Uh, let's move on uh, to another story, which is an, an astonishing reportage piece in El País, which is talking about the women journalists of Afghanistan. Yeah, a really fascinating piece, actually, as you mentioned, in Spain's <clears throat> El País, looking at essentially the state of journalism since uh, the Taliban returned to power a year and a half ago, and not just the state of journalism. I mean, it does talk about how the fact since the Taliban have returned to power, the number of media outlets uh, in Afghanistan has gone down from 547 uh, to 219. But beyond that sort of general panoramic of the state of journalism in Afghanistan, it's particularly looking uh, at the plight of women journalists in Afghanistan. And it's fascinating. It quotes a figure from Reporters Without Borders that says 76% of female reporters have left the country since August uh, 2021. And in this article, we just get to learn of some of these courageous women who have remained. It talks about a handful of female journalists who are still doing their job um, in Afghanistan. And, and, and one that particularly stood out for me was Mina Habib, uh, who has a website uh, called, called, I'm probably going to uh, pronounce this wrong, Roy Dadha. And just what she goes through really on a daily basis, the fact that she lives with her parents who don't really approve of what she's doing, uh, but also the fact that she's essentially funding this journalistic endeavour herself. In this article, she talks about how she's had to sell furniture and jewellery uh, to finance it. She doesn't make a salary from doing this job. And there's an incredible picture of her sat at a press conference on a carpet surrounded uh, by men. She's the only woman in the room there with her recorder taking notes uh, at a press conference. And, you know, how she has the courage to go on despite threats, despite an attempt to arrest her, despite a Taliban member uh, breaking her camera at one point when she was trying to record a demonstration of women. But there's a whole host of uh, women mentioned in, in this article. Some of them have had to leave the country and are coordinating uh, uh, websites from abroad, but with local teams. Uh, but just an incredible uh, uh, story, really, of perseverance and courage in the face of the Taliban. Ed, thank you so much for that. We'll have to leave it uh, there. That was Ed Stocker, our Europe editor on the line from Milan, bringing us the newspaper review on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
Now, all during the programme, I've been promising you that we'd get a roundup of the Oscars from Karen Krasanovich. It's time. Hello, Karen, film critic and regular Monocle 24 contributor. Welcome back to the studio. It's lovely to be here. Tell us what's what with the world of, of Oscars. Oh, it's just, a couple of days just, since they came out. But so, I know, gone I know. It was Tuesday. Um, oh, gosh, there's, there's, I don't even know where to start. It, overall, <laughs> it was quite satisfying. I mean, 11 nominations for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. It's the best Metaverse movie. Michelle Yeoh um, getting, getting, you know, a, a welcome nod. And also, she's, she's also winning, I'm just going to add this, the Critic Circle. Uh, Dillis Award, which was announced a few days ago. So we're very excited. We'll be meeting her next week. Oh, no, actually, no, that's well, a couple of weeks. Uh, just huge, huge things. I mean, foreign films suddenly breaking through language barriers, um, a terrific nomination for Angela Bassett. It's just, and, and of course, lots of surprises as well. But it's it's been very positive, and I think people are excited about movies. What are you the most excited about? Because you've, you've come in and you've given, brought me an excited list, and I'm, we could talk all day, but we, and sadly we don't have that. Okay. We will focus. Um, I think that people, there's a handful of films that people should see. I mean, if you haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, see it. If you haven't seen Tar, uh, Triangle of Sadness, these are the ones I've been talking about all year. Um, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And also, All's Quiet on the Western Front, which is that story from the 20s that was that one best picture in 1930, I believe, and uh, is told from the German perspective. So that's really, and that's on Netflix. So watch that. Just briefly touch on Top Gun. My eyebrows were raised ever so slightly when I thought it was up for best film. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of reasons. Don't forget, the Oscars is not is not about merit. It's it's about (laughs) it is about merit, but it's also about popularity and about the industry. And you know, Maverick came to Cannes last year and saved the day. And it's a terrific film. In fact, my partner continues to watch it endlessly. Uh, And technically, it's fantastic. And it's a great Hollywood. Movie. It is. I'll I'll, I'll grant you that. Um, Elvis is up there as well. Elvis is up there as well. Baz Luhrmann did not get a director nod, but um, Elvis and Austin Butler. Well, um, again, it's a popularity contest. Right. It really is. Todd Field did, of course, for 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 Tar, which is one of my favorites of the year. but it, it didn't because, I know, he's not really in the mix, let's put it that way, but Austin Butler did get a Best uh, best Actor nom as well, which is brilliant for him. And there's a campaign to this this, this astonishing um, situation with, a, with, with <laughs> oh, Andrea uh, to Leslie, which is a, not an easy film. It's a really difficult have film. You, have you seen it yet? Not, it's, okay. I'm, I, t- I keep starting you know, it. You know, I keep having no, to no, go no, away. No, I know but what you Andrew mean. Andrew Riseborough is, is suddenly nominated. It actually it actually gets happier. Thank you. I don't want to be a spoiler here. Because it doesn't start happy. I know. I know. She like wash your hair, please. But there is um, that. Okay. She she's <laughs> a, she plays. Okay. Andrew Isborough, tiny tiny independent film uh, that came from nowhere. Even though it was released last year, um, about a woman that wins the lottery and just spends all her money and ends up homeless, basically, and destitute and unpopular. Um, and now she's got, and this was mooted, that she has got a best uh, a best actress nomination, and this is on the back of her famous friends putting on screenings and word of mouth for her. I told you this is a popularity contest. So there's the big issue then. Mm. About why are there no black filmmakers in this party? This today? was this is shocking for me. I I was watching this and I was screaming, and my my office mates were like, "Yeah, be quiet." Um, yeah, there, there's okay. Um, the Woman King, certainly, there's so many Oscar-worthy movies made by, by black filmmakers. Uh, Woman King, black, stars a black woman, produced by black women, and was directed by black women, didn't even get a look in. Nope, one of my best films of the year. Um, 
didn't didn't get a look in. And it's strange. And also Till, which didn't get a lot of screenings here, uh, Whoopi Goldberg acted in it and produced it. And uh, Daniela Deadweiler um, holds that entire film together. Finally, um, very briefly, if you wouldn't mind. Yes. There was supposed to be a biopic of Madonna. <laughs> yes. It's now not happening. It's and not the happening. whole of the world is wanting to have a documentary made about the boot camp required to be Madonna I if think that you would are be great. Julia Garner. Because, because there was a, what, what Variety called a grueling weeks-long bake-off <laughs> amongst the young actors trying to, trying to uh, be Madonna. And uh, Julia Garner really looked like her. We'd love to know what happened, but basically, Madonna says, no, you know, the movie can wait. I'm going to go do my tour. Meanwhile, Julia Garner sits down and has a, hopefully, a sit, well, a rest, because by all accounts, it was pretty tough. Pretty hard. Karen Krasanovich, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You were The Globalist. Finally, we head to the Bangkok Art Biennale, which opened in October, kicking off its final month with a special lecture from the renowned performance artist Marina Abramovich, who also exhibited nine major video works related to the Biennale's theme, Chaos and Calm. Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegant spoke with Marina Abramovich and the Biennale's artistic director, Upinan Poshyananda, to hear more. Marina Abramovich is chaos and calm, you know, I know her for 30 years. So, so in this way, whatever she chooses or whether we show, there's this beautiful dilemma and contradiction within herself and her works. So in this way, there's, there's her body, her work, and the way her, she talks, the way she creates this, this aura and how people react to her is in itself an amazing way of presenting. But I'm not saying that chaos calm is totally binary opposites. I'm saying that chaos calm can be together and we, we have to blend this together. And I think uh, her works that she mentioned, the nine videos, actually tell us a lot about herself, her works over the past 30 years, but also about uh, the ways of how performance art developed. You, you can see the art in her age, in her group, you know, those who began with performance, they move on to other things, to sculpture, to more commodified artworks. But Marina Bravmich has stuck to her roots, uh, her, how she has used performance as a way to be herself and, and to use her stamina and endurance to show that performance art can, can be very much you know important part of contemporary art world. Yeah. My work is full of contradictions. I have the work who is, you know, who is in, in a certain way in really pushing the, the body limits and deal with the aggression and it deal with energy. And another work who is very meditative, very calm. So I look what I've done in the past and I choose the work who actually express these two opposites. Calm and chaos is two opposites. And it's so interesting that uh, Dr. Apinan actually chose this, the theme for the Biennale, because Bangkok is such a perfect example of the calm and chaos, because in this all chaotic situation of the traffic, of the air pollution, of the, you know, the, the develop, very fast development with enormous uh, floods of tourism, 
and the mess we can experience every day, you know, is the sound pollution, is the visual pollution, is it's all consumption pollution. You also can go in the total quiet places where you actually see people meditating and be in a, in a temple area and oblivion of what all is happening outside. So this is so fascinating to me. And you also created new work in Thailand itself, right? Could you talk about that a bit? Oh my God! I, I first time I came to Thailand, it was uh, already in uh, eight in eighty three, and uh, this was the first time I actually arrived. And I arrived at that time with the Belgium crew, working with uh, Michel Laub, another artist from Belgium, and Mondo Zanolini, and we was asked to actually create something inspired. Uh, by uh, by Thailand, and at that time I work with the Ulai, which we you know produce for twelve years work together. So we decide to go to Ayutthaya, and Ayutthaya name of Ayutthaya. This was old capital of Thailand. It was called City of Angels. So this is the name of the video that we made first in Thailand, and in this video it was really quite revolutionary for us because it's the first time that we actually did the performing this video. We decide to just direct it, and we wanted to work only with Thai people who had never been in the front of the camera. And condition of the shooting was to do only in the morning with sunrise and only in the evening with. Sunset, so with the natural light. So we arrive in Ayutthaya and we start casting people. We went to the market and I cast very old men and very old women who 40 years selling vegetables on the market. We went to see two young boys, you know, working with the wood. And we asked also the monk to participate in this project, Tibetan, you know, the, the Buddhist monk. And then the, actually we found the man who was begging for food on the street. And we asked him to also be in the shot. And this was such an incredible, interesting experience doing this work. And this is how actually my relation to Thailand became stronger and stronger. Can you tell us what you plan to discuss in your talk tomorrow? The topic of the talk is the long durational artwork and my institute. And uh, also the part is going to be participation of the public in the talk. You know, how I actually demonstrate what means Abramovich method for art and for general audience. And um, it's, it's really with lots of visual material and uh, not boring to for sure. And really I wanted to know even if the person who come to listen to this talk and never know anything about performance art after two hours and 15 minutes of the discussion and look at the material and me being accessible to any question to answer, I, they will go with the idea of what performance art is and why this kind of form of art is important today, especially. It sounds kind of interesting because it sounds like, you know, with the interactive audience, in a way, the lecture is also like a small piece of performance art. You know, the one of the biggest lectures I, I made recently, just end of the last year, was in uh, Lithuania and in Kaunas, which they announced on the you know web that people apply for the lecture. And uh, actually, the 6,000 people apply. So the only place that the lecture could be done, it was in basketball stadium. And this was probably the biggest lecture I've done in my life. And this is which entire public participate. This was something that I actually never forget. Why people come from completely different types of life. They're not just artists, but just the normal people. You know, there was interesting what, you know, performance work is. So I think that, that, that the performance art on the emotional level can reach so much more people than very, that is the art who, who is more static and does not have this live element.
Marima Abramovich in conversation with Naomi Shu Elegant. That's all we have time for today's programme. Thanks to my guests, to the producers and our studio manager too. After the headlines, more music on the way for now from me, Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Listener.